Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Farfetched Fables. Welcome to show number 30. As usual, we have two amazing stories for you, so let's not waste any more time and get right to it, shall we? Our first story today is Keeper of Memory by Todd Lockwood. Todd creates his images with a mystic combination of acrylics, oils, coral painter, photoshop, blood, epithets, secret incantations, and gin. His designs involve images derived from fantasy and science fiction, fantasy role-playing games, his dragon fetish, years of playing Dungeons and Dragons, and watching Mother Nature, his love of mythology and the transformation of myth into religion. If you're looking at the Far-Fetched Fables website at this moment, you will see some of his amazing artwork adorning our page in honour of this story. Todd's illustration work has appeared on New York Times best-selling novels, magazines, video games, collectible card games and fantasy role-playing games. It has been honoured with multiple appearances in Spectrum and the Communication Arts Illustration Annual and with numerous industry awards. Always known for the narrative power of his paintings, Todd now turns his hand to writing and is working on a novel to be published by DIW Books at a date still to be determined. You can follow the links on our Triple F to see more and read more of his fantastic work. It's narrated for us today by Sam Walter. When he's not travelling across the US looking for the finest barbecue, Sam spends his time learning all about the latest and greatest in the world of craft beer. He hosts the West Lot Pirates podcast, which focuses on college sports, primarily college football. He lives in Chicago with his wife and their adorable cat. So, let's hear Keeper of Memory by Todd Lockwood. Dan screamed until the monster's teeth crushed ribs against ribs. Blood poured from his lungs, a bright flower unfurling on the pavestones. 
He bolted upright. A tree root scraped his back as he tried to crab backwards, but his feet were entangled in his blanket. He sat still, surprised to feel moss and short grass under the heels of his hands. A soft hush surrounded him. The landscape shrouded in fog that deadened sound and confused distance, rendering trees and stones into ghostly shadows of themselves. Panting, he rubbed his face with pale fingers and blinked away the blur in his eyes. His sweat grew cold in the damp air. Gods, what a dream! It wasn't the first time he'd died in his dreams. Not the first time by a long stretch. The details were familiar. Towers of acrid smoke and blinding flame. A tumult of screams, clashing metal and bellowing rage. But he'd never before faced the Dahak itself, the monstrous, sentient dragon whose armies terrorized the city of Sinvat. Many priests insisted that the Dahak was a high dragon, something far greater than the beasts Sinvat's warriors rode into combat. True or not, the beasts in this dream were bigger and more terrifying than any dragon he'd ever seen. He shook his head to evict the last ghost of his nightmare. He was in the mountains, in the fog. The wet mist must have put out his fire in the night, his third night, and he still hadn't found any cinderblack from Myrrh, his master, the keeper of memory. Cinderblack. Myrrh had sent him up the mountain to find the dark berries of the cindervine for the priests. They needed the cinderblack for their inks, for the magic that they hoped would help turn the fortunes of war. With it, they tattooed sigils of strength and stamina into the flesh of the warriors and their dragon mounts. The science was young, but promising. The staying power of the cinderblack inks allowed for greater complexity and nuance. Dane wasn't a warrior. He was an acolyte of the temple, and they didn't fight. Most acolytes assisted the priests who graved the sigils onto the skin of those who fought. They tended their wounds or delivered them to their pyres on the rare occasion when their bodies made it home. He knew war, if only for a distance, from seeing its after-effects. The broken, the dismembered, the maimed, who'd returned on their dying beasts, the grieving wives and the mothers, the wailing children. Dane's task as Murr's acolyte, one of four, was markedly different. As the keeper of memory, Murr had dedicated his life to the preservation of the city's long history. Dane studied in Murr's library and hoped to be his successor. Already, the entire history of Sinvat resided in Dane's head. After years of hard study and drill and rote memorization, he knew the name of every man who had fallen, every dragon mount that failed to return. He committed every one to memory, scribed each into a record book that he kept with him at all times. He sat up straight in panic. Where was his record? Dane untangled the blanket from his legs and jumped to his feet. His basket nestled in the elbow of a tree root, empty of all but his meager food supply. Foolish! I must have kicked it in my sleep and sent it rolling. His tooth scrub and pens lay nearby. The box containing his flint and steel had spilled into a puddle. Fine keeper of memory he would be one day. He couldn't even keep track of his most important possession. He imagined his master's scornful rant, felt the sharp crack of the old man's hand on the back of his head. He was Murr's best student, he knew that. But he couldn't lose his first record book in the mountains, his very first personal entry into the great library of Sinvat. That would be a disaster. He scanned about quickly, shook out his blanket, raked through the wet grass with his hands. It wasn't here. His search became frantic. Not under the bushes, not in the puddle. Could it have landed in the fire? With sinking stomach, he poked at it. But the wood wasn't even completely burned. Surely a piece of it would remain if it had. At last, he picked up his basket 
and there between the tree root and the hummock of moss lay the small, leather-bound book. With a sigh of relief, he brushed it off and held it to his chest. When his heart stopped pounding, he kissed the book and stuck it in his tunic. Taking a deep breath, he shrugged off his shame at panicking and acting like a child. Cinderblack. The very thought of the berries made his belly grumble. On wages day, the autumnal equinox, there would be autumn berries everywhere, but the cinderblack were rare and not for eating. He pulled a knotted cloth out of his basket and opened it. Less than half a loaf of his waybread remained, and the cheese was gone. Unhappily, he broke off a small knob of bread and bound the rest up again. Water shouldn't be hard to come by, but he would wait to drink until he found a stream where he could refill his water skin. Dane slid the straps of the basket over his shoulders. It bounced slightly on his back. Too lightly. Don't return until your basket is full, Murr had told him. He set out. This late in the season, Cinderblack would be hard to find. He'd found none on the southern exposures of the nearest slopes, so he set a course along a ridge for the next mountain southward, hoping for success on its north face, where cooler temperatures and limited light delayed the harvest. Light glimmered in wan diffusion, the sun little more than a patch in the fog. Soon, Dane realized he was lost, but he maintained his southern path. Pine trees replaced ash and birch and oak. Moss gave way to grass, dirt to stony outcroppings. He knew he'd gained altitude. He stepped into an open space suddenly, surprised to find paving stones beneath his feet. The glowing air revealed silhouettes of crumbled wall and toppled pillars surrounding a small courtyard. It might have been a fortress, or a temple, with a commanding view of the valley on a clear day. The sun brightened, acquiring a hard edge, though he could still look directly at it. For the first time that morning, he became aware of smells, crisp pine, wet earth, and damp stone. It seemed as if this place defied the gloom, a small island of light and life. A brief gust of air caused an old leaf to chitter across the stones. Then the mist swirled, parted. A statue appeared out of the fog. At first, its subject eluded him. He saw only a tangle of roping sinew and claws and wings, pitted and worn beneath a cloak of moss. But as he studied it, two dragons emerged in realistic detail, a white one above and a black one below, locked in battle. The closer he looked, the more masterful the artifice became. They seemed almost alive. But their forms were exaggerated, not like the dragons men rode into war. Certainly, they must be depictions of high dragons. He hurriedly fished his record book out of his tunic. He should sketch a picture of this. His eyes were drawn morbidly to the black beast below. The Dahak was said to be a high dragon, like this one, but the white one? In all of Sinbad's stories, was there... Hello. Dane jumped, barely keeping hold of his book, and spun to see a young girl stepping cautiously out of the forest and onto the courtyard, staring. She might have been six, possibly seven. Dark eyes and hair, simple homespun attire, carrying a small basket. She paused and cocked her head with a beguiling half-smile on her face, as if waiting for him to answer before she came any closer. Uh, hello. Who are you? she asked, approaching again tentatively. He looked around himself, for what he didn't know. Feeling awkward at having been surprised, pleasantries the furthest thing from his mind. Murr often scolded him for being tongue-tied or for saying the exact wrong thing at the exact wrong time. He tucked his book away and straightened his tunic self-consciously. Only when she stopped again, a few feet away, did he find wits to reply. I, uh, m my name is Dane, and you, you, your, uh, your name? I'm Maya, she smiled. 
What are you doing here? Her accent was odd, clipped, unlike any he knew. I, uh, well, I, I, I was admiring the sculpture here. Can you tell me anything about it? She scrutinized the statue behind him, her head tilted and her mouth twisted sideways. Well, it's very old. It shows two high dragons fighting. One is black and the other is white. The white one wins. Mother likes to come here on Menog's Day to lay dried flowers under it, but I don't remember why. That's really all I know. High dragons, she said it so casually. Dan squatted down to bring his eyes to her level. She backed up a step, so he shrugged the basket off his back and sat on it. I'm surprised to see it, that's all. I've never heard of this place, though it's so close to my city. It's a very elegant statue, isn't it? She cocked her head at him, brows pinched. You talk funny. He smiled. No, you talk funny. She grinned back at him. Where is your house? I'm from Sinvat, that way, he gestured vaguely in the direction that he thought might be west. I've heard of that, but I don't know where it is. Is it a big village? I should hope you've heard of it. It's a city, the biggest in these parts, until you get to the coast. Trena is on the coast, and it's the biggest city I know of. Trena. She shook her head slowly. I don't know that name. It must be very far away. Not so terribly far, really. Have you ever seen a big city? No, just my village, Riyadh. And where is that? She pointed back and to her right, more or less southeast. That way, on the cliff. My father is the broodmaster there. Broodmaster, an unfamiliar term. Are you here alone? No, I'm here with my mother and Groose. Groose, is that your sister? She laughed briefly, a melodious sparkle of sound. No, Groose's mother's dragon. Her dragon? You ha have a dragon? Maya studied him through squinted eyes. Of course we do. We have six dragons, three breeding pairs. I told you my father is the broodmaster. Dragon breeders, so close by, and he'd never heard of them before. Surely the council knew every breeder for leagues around. Perhaps he'd wandered farther off his course than he realized. Or Maya and her mother traveled a long way on their dragon to be here. Six dragons would scarcely compare to the hundreds bred in the Ares of Sinbad, but in such times as these, every dragon kit mattered. He fished his record book out of his tunic and fumbled his pen and a bottle of ink out of his basket. Maya's eyes grew round. What is that? This is my record book. I write everything important in here. Are you going to write me in there? I most certainly am. You and your mother and... Groose, did you say her name was? Maya nodded happily, pleased to be accorded such importance. His hand hesitated before making a mark, though. He didn't know how far off his trail he might have wandered in the fog. He drew a quick map of the valley and the surrounding peaks and ridges, put an X as a best guess, then added some notes about the statue and Maya. I suspect some of the elders would like to visit your father and meet Groose. Is your mother nearby? Maya nodded again. May I meet her? The girl's brow pinched into a frown, her lips puckered in thought. I don't think she will see you. Dane pulled upright. Why ever not? She crossed her arms. You don't belong here. Dane felt an indignation rising, but he struggled with the voice of Myrrh in his head, warning him to stay polite, to consider his words wisely. Even as he swallowed his anger, the girl said, Why are you here, really? 
not just to look at statues. Are you lost? Perceptive child. He slumped and nodded. Yes, I admit that I am a little bit lost. The fog disoriented me. He shrugged. I'm supposed to collect berries for the priests. Her face brightened, if only a little. We're gathering berries, too. We come here sometimes to picnic, but today we're gathering berries for the wages day banquet. She held up her little basket as proof. He now saw that it was full of dark red bunch berries. So you are. Do you know where to find the best berries? She nodded. Where you're from, you get to eat berries? Of course, sometimes. I'm looking for a very specific kind of berry, though. Do you know Cinderblack? No, said like a question. They're very dark, not shiny like some berries. They grow in the shadows on vines with blazing red leaves. Do you know of these? Do you mean charberries? They're not very good. Birds and fairy dragons like them, but that's because they swallow them whole. Then their poop stains never come clean. Dane leaned forward in excitement. Yes, that sounds right. Do you know where some are right now? She nodded again slowly. Apprehension now seemed to jostle with her interest, so he pulled back. Can you show me? I would be very grateful. She scrutinized him for a moment. Why do you want those awful things? I can show you good berries. He considered how to answer such an innocent question. He could invent something simple, but he suddenly felt concerned for this wildling child and her family. Her guileless curiosity put an unexpected lump in his throat. She deserved the truth. She should know the truth. We are hard-pressed by the Dahak's forces, and we need every advantage we can get. She looked truly puzzled now. You're pressed? Like, squashed? She didn't understand at all. How could she not have been touched by war? Were they so isolated that the Dahak hadn't found them yet? It seemed impossible. No, yes, the the Dahak squeezes us, all of us. We need the, the, the charberries because they make the best ink for the priests. The best inks make the strongest gravings. She nodded. My father has gravings. Does he? Is he a warrior? He stood and she took a step back, shaking her head. Maya, our people are at war, and whether you realize it or not, you are in great danger. The Dahak won't stop until its armies have taken everything. Have you seen strange and horrible armies with dragons that are dark and misshapen? He reached out to her, but she took another step back. Was it possible that her family had already been turned? Is that why Maya's mother might refuse to meet him? If you're at war, why are you here gathering berries? Her voice in that moment seemed wiser than her years, her face so pinched with distrust that Dane regretted his surge of honesty. It, it, it's my duty. They are needed. Please, Maya, can you show me where the berries are? She pointed to the west without taking her eyes off of him. Up there, in the rocks. Thank you, and now may I meet your mother? I would love to talk to her. Maya shook her head again. She won't see you. You should go back where you came from. I think you're scaring me. Maya, no, I, I'm not scary. I'm, I'm, I'm scared for you. I really need to talk to you. I think I should go now. She turned and headed into the forest, into the mist. No, please don't go. Maya, wait. He stuffed his pen and his record book into his tunic, stoppered his ink and poked it in too, then snatched up his basket and followed after. He suddenly found himself surrounded by a soft gray shadow, as if the edge of the courtyard defined a boundary between light and gloom. The fog had swallowed her. It still lay thick under the trees, 
but he thought he heard footsteps and cracking twigs ahead. Maya, please don't go. Please take me to your mother. He stopped to listen for her, but the dense air muted all sounds. Beneath this canopy of shadows, he felt disoriented again and cursed himself for a fool. Maya! Not even an echo. Please! Surely her mother would have heard his shouts, even in this fog. Maya's mother, if you can hear me, please answer. He waited long minutes for some sort of response. A shout, returning footsteps, the beat of a dragon's wings. But the air only grew heavier, the sounds more dense. And what if her family had been turned? For, for whom did her family breed dragons? He shuddered to think that he stood here shouting out his position, inviting his own doom. He turned to retrace his steps back to the statue in the ruins, his hands shaking and his feet numb. He needed to get some sort of bearings. After several minutes of tramping, he knew that he had missed it somehow. He took a bearing on the brighter patch of sky where the sun dwelled, then started a circular path, expanding with each turn, in hopes of coming across the statue in the courtyard again. When the bright patch neared its zenith, he abandoned the effort. If it could be found, he most certainly would have found it by now. What had happened here? He trudged through the wet undergrowth toward the ridge the girl had indicated, watching each approaching shadow with supernatural fear until it confirmed itself as a tree or log or pile of stone. He touched them as he passed, to be certain of their solidity. Shaking, he drew his tunic closer. A strange arcane glamour permeated this mist, something dark and elusive that teased him with statues and with images of little girls who then vanished without trace. The voice of young Maya repeated in his head again and again, If you're at war, why are you here gathering berries? Why had Murr sent him into the mountains? He'd be far more useful at recording events in Sinbad. Oh, Asha, source of all truth, without a doubt I am the most miserable servant you ever endured. As soon as the words were out of his mouth, he stumbled upon a thick patch of cinder vine growing out of the cracks in a rock outcropping. The leaves blazed with their autumn colors, the vines laden with cinder black, dripping with dew. He fell to his knees and bowed his head. Praise to the source for showing mercy to this humble fool. I terrorize myself with imagined dangers when all along you only mean to show me what I seek. A tear of thanks melted into the dampness collecting on his skin. He emptied the contents of his basket, pens and ink and flint box, wrapped them together with the bread in his parcel, and poked it all into his tunic. Then he slung his water skin on his shoulder and set to filling the basket with fruit. Soon it was heavy enough that it no longer bounced on his back. He sat with the basket resting on the ground behind him long enough to make an entry in his book. Wages Day, 207th Year, 4th Age Huge patch of cinder black on the high ridge east of Sinbat. Possibly one day on a direct path. Revealed to me by Asha, source of all truth, through the auspices of a young girl, Maya, who I met in a courtyard previously unknown to me. This was a singularly strange event. I pray one day to retrace these steps to find the ruins and girl again. It wasn't the thorough sort of entry that would please Murr, but it would have to do. He hefted his load and started west, slightly north, downhill toward his home. Earlier than he expected to, he descended out of the clouds into the familiar terrain of oak and moss. The sight of Sinbad's domes and towers gleaming in the scattered beams of sunlight quickened his heart and added length to his stride. He couldn't wait to deliver his bounty, glad to leave behind him the mists that surrounded the uplands. 
Soon he hailed the city guard, who swung a gate behind the eastern portcullis open for him to enter, and he hurried through crowded streets towards the temple library. As a throng jostled and bumped him in passing, Dane felt an edge, an urgency that troubled him. He slid into a doorway to watch and listen. Everyone moved with unusual haste. A troop of foot soldiers marched past in double time. Dragons bearing mounted warriors circled overhead in greater numbers than was normal. Expressions were fearful. Voices clipped or strident. Panicked conversations jumbled together in his ears, but he listened, taking mental notes the way he'd been trained to do, planning ahead to the entries in his record. He heard armies and battle and Dahak again and again. Finally, he grabbed a courier by the sleeve as he passed. The boy spun around with fear rather than annoyance or anger in his face. I beg pardon, young sir, but can you please tell me why everyone's in a panic? The boy peeled Dane's fingers from his sleeve, shaking his head in stunned negation. Haven't you heard? Trenna has fallen. The Dahak comes. And then he dashed away. The world descended into fog again, a cloud of shocked disbelief. Trenna? Fallen? How is that possible? Trenna defended Sinvat's western approach from... Dane leaned against the doorframe with his basket of berries until balance returned. Shining Trenna by the sea. Fallen. Unsure what else to do, he let Rote guide him. He slid down the wall to a sitting position and pulled his writing materials out of his tunic, opened his book on his lap, fumbled the bottle of ink open. His hands shook so violently he couldn't put nib of pen into ink. When it splashed on his book and leg, he dropped the bottle and it shattered on the cobbles. What am I doing? Asha, forgive my addled brain. He struggled upright and closed his book, vaguely aware that the wet ink would stick those two ruined pages together. His pen lay forgotten in the doorway as he staggered out into the traffic again. Movement seemed to sharpen his mind, and he hurried his pace, through the middle streets crowded with carts and soldiers to the temple district, where the circle of truth representing the cycles and Asha surmounted the great brass dome of the temple. Up the long stairs to the huge arched doors of the temple library, with the shadows of mounted dragons crisscrossing his path, blindly past the tattooed sentries who mumbled his name, their alarmed questions failing in his ears, into the vast hall where skylights above threw slanted beams across the dusty vault, past ranks of tables normally covered with stacks of books and baskets of scrolls, crowded with students and scholars and peasants alike, but now starkly empty to the great desk that served as both barricade and gateway to the legions of bookcases beyond, where Murr turned toward him, eyes bright above the wire-rimmed spectacles, with a gaze that shifted from worried to horror-stricken. Dane, by the source, what are you doing here? Panting, Dane removed the basket from his back and set it on the desktop. Black juice dribbled out of it like ichor. No doubt his tunic was stained, too. It would never come out. He started to apologize, scrubbing ineffectually at the liquid with his fingers. But Murr hobbled around the desk and took him by the shoulders. My boy, my boy, oh gods, what have I done? You should not be here. The old man drew him close with arms like sticks, but sinewy and strong. But I don't understand. I've done what you ask. I've brought back Cinderblack for the priests. Yes, and a good bounty it is. A tear escaped from his master's eye. But I didn't expect you to find any. My hope was that you would be gone for a long while and might escape the coming storm. Escape with and preserve everything you have committed to memory about Sinvat. 
Dane's heart sank in his chest, pounded against his ribs. Why didn't you tell me that? Why would you send me out on on a fool's mission? The old man took Dane's face in his hands, dry as paper, and studied him, his gaze shifting from eye to eye. I didn't know for certain that it would happen. I only acted as a precaution against rumor. You are my brightest pupil, but you are honest to a fault. I didn't want you to go forth in alarm, spreading news that would turn to false gossip. My hope was that you would return eventually. The rumors would be proven false, and we might laugh over my needless fears. But that in the worst event you would be safe, you who contain everything. Everything. Master, if I had known... His stomach twisted at his master's words. He was honest to a fault. He'd scared a little girl this morning when she might have led him to new allies. He hung his head. No, don't blame yourself, Mer released him. Not your folly, but mine. I sent you because our history lives in your brain like in none of the others. If rumor were to prove true, you might survive to put it all to pen once more and rescue Sinvat's place in time. But now, because I played coy with the truth, here you are, successful and thorough as always. Asha, forgive me. Dane watched his master's face sort through the pain, then sorrow, then anger that settled with outthrust chin on firm resolve. It's not yet too late. You've returned in time to help me finish a task. Come, I have been moving the most important tomes to the vaults, where I hope we can wall them up before the hour grows too late. What about these? Dane indicated the basket of Cinderblack. Mare waved him off. I'll send a boy to collect them and take them to the priests. And well done, my son, well done. But think about them no more. The keeper of memory hobbled around the desk and into the maze of tall wooden bookcases. Dane followed, with one backward glance at the basket leaking undeniably on the desk of the great library. Gaps decimated the rows of books, many shelves vacant already. You've been at this already, I see. Where are Tolek and Barth? And Jenia, are they helping? Murr paused and turned towards him, peering over his eyeglasses. His face grew long. I sent them away this morning when the rumors became truth, with instructions to get as far from Sinvad as they could, not to return until they know all is safe, if ever. The more of you who escape and survive, the better chance memory has. He turned away again. Dane swallowed and hurried after. They passed row upon row of volumes Dane had read or copied or repaired. Here were the chronicles of the conquest of Lenaris, followed by the story of Lascarion peacemakers and the trials of Lauterne. He saw that Murr had already removed the oldest and the newest of each copy, preserving both the ancient original and the most recent translation, leaving those of middling age to chance. A painful lump filled his throat. So much would be lost even if he escaped, with all his memories intact and the vaults escaped plunder. Murr stopped before a shelf containing the volumes of the Third Age and pulled out several books without delay. Here, my boy. He dropped the volumes into Dane's waiting arms, stacking them until Dane whimpered. He added one more, grabbed the last and largest two for himself, then started down the row again. This way, quickly now. The stairs to the vaults were old beyond reckoning. Artifacts left from the original library built in centuries past. They represented the original hall, around which the city had risen layer by layer. Until now, the ancient ceiling was below the level of the streets. Dane caught himself against the wall several times when his feet slipped on the smooth, rounded steps. They emerged into dank gloom where torches burned fitfully in sconces along the walls. 
Shells of stone staggered away into darkness, arrayed like miniature row houses in the poorest quarter of the city. Murr plucked a torch from a sconce and held the way down one of the narrow avenues. Dane stumbled after. At last, they climbed a short stair into a smaller room, with a rounded ceiling decorated in ancient mosaic. More tiles peeked from the walls between the books that filled every corner. Stacks upon stacks of books. Every horizontal surface bore mountains of ancient tomes in leather and cloth, wood and paper. Piles supported planks of wood, with more piles atop that, baskets of scrolls tucked into every void. There was scarcely room to walk between them, but there was order nonetheless. Bits of paper stuck out here and there, with notes penned in his master's careful hand. Put them here, my son. Murr set his tomes gently on a low bench, and Dane managed to place his beside them without toppling the entire stack. Then Murr produced a note from the pocket of his robes and stuck it into one of the volumes. There are a few more books together, but first I want to show you something important. He pointed to the lintel of the door by which they had entered. Do you see this great slab of stone here? This is how the vaults will be sealed if worst does come to worst. Dane felt a touch of nascent panic at what might follow. Murr continued, This wheel here, and he indicated a large metal ring, like a cartwheel set in the wall behind the door. When turned completely to the right, we'll release a cascade of sand within the walls. A counterweight will fall, releasing the stops that held this stone up. It will crash down and seal this chamber against any assault. Dane considered that, allowing in his mind that a man might turn that wheel and still escape before the sand ran out and the door fell. Now come with me over here. Murr wormed his way through piles of books to the opposite side of the room, where Dane saw an identical arrangement of door and wheel. Murr slapped the stone door frame. The passage you see beyond this door winds under the streets into the northern foothills of the mountains. In a last resort, this will be our escape route. We'll drop this door behind us and pray that the mountains aren't crawling with the Dahak's minions. He said the words with great calm, but his eyes were wide and bright. Dane could only nod. Now, let us go collect the last of the books. When they returned to the great hall of the library, they heard screams from the city. Dane ran to the doors with Murr hobbling after. The sentries stood in ready pose, looking out with their halberds lowered. One of them turned, his face ashen, and raised a hand to stop Dane from going to the door. What? It has begun, said the sentry, voice cracking. You should go back. No, I must see. I'm the student of the keeper. Dane shoved his way past and into the doorway. I should see and take notes, make a record. His voice failed when he looked out over the city. Mounted dragons swarmed over the outer defenses, a tidal wave breaching a sea wall. A black cloud of winged terrors snatched soldiers and civilians up into the air, tore them apart, flung the pieces, returned for more. Their riders dropped nets to snare men and dragged them from the ramparts or through pots that shattered into flame in the city below. Dragons landed in the cleared areas, extra skirmishers dismounted bearing swords and crossbows. Sinvat's defenders gave battle, Dragons grappled with dragons in midair. Their riders fired crossbows and swung swords. Warriors ripped from harnesses plummeted to their deaths. Beasts toppled from sky with broken necks or crippled wings. A dragon corpse crunched onto the stairs not thirty feet away and rolled loosely over, revealing a half-mangled rider still strapped into the saddle. A groan of shock escaped Dane. When Murr clutched his shoulder, he jumped. One of the sentries pushed them backwards so forcefully that Dane had to catch Murr in a stumble. Get inside, we are barring these doors. They pulled the doors shut, doors that had stood wide and welcomed Dane's entire life. 
ornate brass latches rotated shut with a clatter. The bar fell into its braces with a heavy thud. Come, my son, Mer's voice was strangely calm. He pulled Dane by his sleeve. We have a task to finish. There came a boom on the door that rattled its hinges and echoed around the great hall. Hurry now, Mer led Dane to the big desk. Mer led Dane to the big desk, went around to the back, and reached underneath. As he struggled with something, Dane noted the basket of cinderblack where he'd left it, the rivulet of black juice now puddling on the floor. Mer wrestled three large tomes onto the desktop. Dane recognized them immediately. One was a student's primer in the history of Sinvat. Not a detailed record, but complete. A best single repository of Sinvat's story. Another was a discussion of philosophy that had guided the creation of Sinvat's representative style of governance. The last was a book of poetry, an omnibus of the most beautiful and inspiring works of art from several ages. Tears came to Dane's eyes, for he knew why Murr had set these three aside. When he looked to his master's face, the old man nodded sadly. If all else fails, these must escape, he said. Something large struck the doors again, followed by scratching and shouts. The sentries, only three of them, Dane saw, positioned themselves in a line across the entry. The doors flexed inward. The bar groaned against the strain. One of the sentries looked back, flinching as the door boomed again, but then waved them away. Go! You can't stay! Bless you, Keeper, for your service. May Asha keep you. Then something long and wide, but flat, like a gigantic curved blade, pushed through the space between the doors, destroying one of the latches. It swept upward, and the bar flew off its braces and thudded to the floor. The doors burst inward, hinges bent, and latches shattered. The sentries cowered in a rain of wood splinters and metal shards. A dragon silhouette filled the opening, before a towering column of flame and smoke in the city beyond. As it tucked its leathery wings close and entered, the torches revealed its monstrousness. Black armor replaced its top frill, bolted to the midnight scoots of its long, arching neck. A dark helmet covered its head, with only slits for eyes to peer out of. In place of paws on its forelimbs, it instead walked on the tips of two long curved blades strapped to the upper leg and bolted to the scales. Runnels of fresh blood bathed those blades. The sentries charged, but the beast reared up and its weapon slashed out longer than the reach of a halberd. The men were cut in half with a single scissor-like motion. Murr whispered in Dane's ear, Sweet Asha, boy, collect the books and follow me. But a deep voice froze them. Dane hadn't noticed the rider before this moment, strapped into an ornate saddle atop the dragon, clad in black armor with a huge, flat sword on his back. Keeper of memory, he said, the Dahak has sent me to find you, with a gift. He reached behind into his saddle-borne chest and withdrew three objects, then hurled them into the hall. Three heads crunched into the marble paving and rolled into view. Murr moaned in horror and started toward them, but Dane held him back. It took him but a moment to know Tolek, Barth, and Jania, the other students whom Murr had sent away this very morning. Dane gathered up the books as Murr began to wail. Foot soldiers poured in through the doors to either side of the dragon, which reached down to gobble up pieces of dead sentry. Shaking with terror, Dane grabbed Murr's sleeve and dragged him into the forest's bookcases. The clatter of metal-shod feet chased him. Dane glanced back once to see soldiers in black leather and dull armor clambering up the shelves, knocking books off, setting torches to the dry paper. Orange light bloomed. Shouts and laughter followed. Murr sobbed as Dane dragged him to the stairs and down, 
through the vaults with the clamor of pursuit close behind to the small chamber where the books were hidden. Torchlight slashed and flickered from a dozen sources as the pursuit closed in. Trembling, Murr attacked the wheel that would release the great lintel stone. Dane set the three books aside and joined him, but Murr struck his hands away. No, boy, you must go, now! When Dane hesitated, Murr slapped him full across the face. Go! Cheeks stinging, tears flowing freely, Dane gathered the books again and started across the chamber, wending a cautious path through the stacks of tomes. The wheel creaked behind him, and he heard a muffled rasp, as if insects ran within the walls. The sand flowed. The big lintel stone rumbled and growled like the cough of a giant, and Dane looked back. Soldiers with torches and swords sprinted across the chamber beyond, but the lintel hadn't dropped. Not yet. Murr struggled with the wheel, and Dane hesitated again. Master? Go, boy. Curse you if you do not leave. You are the keeper of memory now. Go. Dane ran to the far door, knocking piles of books over in his haste. He set his load aside and grabbed the other wheel, pulling with all his strength. It resisted his efforts at first, but then moved with a lurch, stuck again, and finally spun freely. Shaking with fear, he gathered his books and darted through the door, even as the lintel began to grind and chatter slowly downward. He looked back. The far door was still open, the big lintel stone jammed in its descent. Soldiers poured into the chamber, knocking piles of books aside, swords leveled. Flames erupted from ancient paper. When Dane saw him last, Murr crouched in the midst of the gathered history of Sinvat, with an armload of books clutched to his chest, a skirmisher's sword raised above him. Even as the stone lintel dropped, Dane heard a sorrowful cry cut short. The thunder of the door's closing echoed through the blackness that followed. Ghoulish taps and scratching came from the other side. Dane screamed at the sounds, willing them to stop, then succumbed to anguish, shivering and sobbing for several minutes in the dark. But Murr's voice in his head scolded him for being emotional and selfish. He braced himself with several deep breaths, then stood and felt about until his hand encountered the stolen wall. Leading carefully with his toes, he started down the corridor, guided only by touch. I will keep your memory, Murr, he whispered to himself. Time crawled in the utter night of the tunnel. Drips punctuated skittering noises and the echoes of his scuffling footsteps. He struggled with his own mind, resisting images that scorched his inner eye, repeating endlessly. A monster slicing through soldiers in a single movement. The faces of Tolek, Barth, and Jania, both in life and death. Murr cringing beneath a falling sword. Books burning. Accompanying the images, Murr's last words to Dane, you are the keeper of memory now. What would he do? Where would he go? Trenna was taken, Sinvat overrun. What cover or comfort would the surrounding wilderness give him? He'd been less abandoned and alone in the fog this morning. Had it really only been this morning? A memory of laughter made him pause in his tracks. The little girl, Maya, with her dark eyes and innocent curiosity. There were people in the wilds who didn't know of the Dahak were still untouched, perhaps less than half a day away. Vulnerable, but they had dragons. An alarm could be raised, word spread, he might be flown to safety, and the memory of Sinvat saved. With hope kindled in his heart, Dane hurried forward, anxious now to find the end of the tunnel. Shortly his toes struck stone, and feeling with his free hand he discovered stairs going up. When his head bumped on a ceiling of stone, he set his books down and felt about with his hands, hinges here, and a latch! 
He studied it with his fingers until he knew how to work it, threw it back, and pushed up. The door resisted. He pushed harder, and it swung up a few inches. The light of a ruddy sunset stung his eyes. After his long trek in the darkest night of his life, it illuminated trees and boulders like a noonday sun. He pressed the door higher, observing a metal rod hinged to the edge that swung down beside him. He used it to prop the door open as he ducked back inside, gathered up his books, then crawled out into the world once more. Around him lay a small stone courtyard, ringed with low benches, but with wild terrain beyond. The surrounding light shifted and moved unnaturally. Not the glow of sunset at all. A low roar filled his ears. Turning, he said, Sweet Asha. From eastern gate to far western wall, the city burned. Towers of flame and smoke swirled into the starless void from every quarter. Even as he watched, the roof of the library collapsed in a fountain of spark and cinders. On the pinnacle of the temple dome, the circle of truth, of the cycles, and of Asha. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Stood bare against the curtain of fire. Dane watched in shock for several minutes as buildings crumbled and the inferno grew higher. Dragons still circled above, but the combat had ended. Sinvat was lost. Dane swallowed his grief. Two thousand years of conquest and refinement and culture now survived only in these books and in his memory. He had a mission and a destination in mind. He fished his record book out of his tunic and flipped through its pages to find the map he had drawn this morning with an X to mark his best guess the location of the courtyard and the statue where he had met an enigmatic little girl. The map wasn't there. He flipped back through the book the other direction, but it wasn't to be found. There were two pages stuck together toward the back. Surely, when he peeled them apart, they were blank other than the stain that bound them, and he remembered spilling ink as he sat in a doorway just a few hours ago. But he knew he'd seen the statue, walked upon the pavers, and spoken with a curious wildling child. A deep, mournful gong sounded from the dome of the temple at that moment, reverberating through the valley and off the surrounding peaks. Dane's eyes snapped up in a time to see the dome list, the walls beneath it disintegrate. 
It thundered down into a maelstrom of flames, giving out one last enormous peal as it cracked. The circle of Asha disappeared in a plume of fire and smoke that shot into the sky. Screams of despair sounded from the city. All of it hauntingly familiar. Too familiar. His dream of death this very morning. As the beat of giant wings filled the air around him, a dreadful thought struck Dane as he swiped the pages of his record forward and backward in vain hope. The map was not there, nor were there missing pages where it might have been. He had never made such accounting in his record. The only chronicle he found with today's date stunned him. Wages Day, 207th year, 4th age. Sun, bright and warm. Stumbled upon a huge cache of cinderblack. Mer will be pleased. He read it twice, pulse throbbing in his ears. But he remembered wandering through fog to a stone courtyard, where he spoke to a mysterious little girl. He'd asked to meet her mother. I don't think she will see you, she replied. As black dragons settled down around him with weapons bolted to their limbs, bearing armored warriors on their back, he realized the bitter, horrifying truth. He knew it as certainly as he knew his name. A rare gift of truth from Asha, perhaps. And when the high dragon, the Dahak, sculled to a landing before him, all doubt was erased. Bigger than any dragon he'd ever seen, so black as to reflect no light at all, its wings like a chasm across the heavens revealing the furthest, lightless void. It stepped toward him. Where its giant talons trod, the grass curled and blackened. The monster from the dream, but also the black dragon from the sculpture. Keeper of memory, it said in his mind, his lips not moving at all. See how memory dies. Then it bent its head down, plucked the three books off the paving where he had laid them, and swallowed them whole. Dane cried out in hopeless agony, knowing that his failure was absolute. The story of Sinbat lost forever. Knowing he had relived his final day of his life over and over again. Unaware, condemned by his remorse to a nightmarish limbo, he would inhabit for eternity. Until after a millennium, a child wandered into the path of his mournful spirit. A child who could see him and speak with him, who interrupted his endless torment with a glimmer of truth. In a courtyard so distant in time from his failure that a statue had been erected and his story all but forgotten while he repeated, repeated. Would he even remember this revelation if, when he woke again? If he could find the girl again, would he somehow give her the history that was about to die with him, that had died with him? Or was he doomed to echo this tragedy, unknowing, until the end of creation? It was the slimmest hope of redemption, perhaps not a hope at all. But he realized something else and with it came a strange serenity. The statue depicted two high dragons in battle, one white, one black. The white one wins, the girl had said to him. Even as the jaws of the Dahak opened and descended toward him, he knew that this was all a phantasm, a memory of events long past. You have already fallen, he said. The Dahak faltered for an instant as this ghost whispering to a memory, and a ripple coursed through its wings of night. Then it took Dane in his teeth and crushed ribs against ribs until blood poured from his lungs onto the pavestones, like a bright flower unfurling. Did you ever hear a story that you wanted to enter and live inside of? That's this kind of story. 
despite all the gruesome stuff that goes on. Our second story today is a beautiful little tale called Awakening by Valjean Jeffers. Valjean is the author of numerous SF and fantasy novels. She was a contributing author during the 2014 Octavia Butler Arts and Activism Celebration. And she was the 2007 semi-finalist for the Rita Dove Poetry Award. Valjean's fiction has appeared in numerous anthologies and she is co-owner of Q&V Affordable Editing. It's read for you today by the marvellous Ms B, who has used her dulcet tones in the service of the hearing impaired over many years. Her biog makes for very interesting reading indeed, and we are very fortunate to have her reading for us today. You can learn more by following the links on the Triple F. And so here we have it. Awakening by Valjean Jeffers The nine-year-old girl ran to catch up with them. I want to go, father, she called. I want to practice, too. Adagoke, a muscular giant of a man, turned to face his daughter. You can't go, Nandi, he said sternly, but there was compassion in his brown eyes. But why? Adagoke took her chin in one of his big hands. Because, my flower, you are a girl. You're not meant to fight. And the ancestors would be angry with me if I trained you for battle. Besides, think of how dirty you'd become. I don't care. Nandi, you're my daughter, the daughter of a king. Aragoke continued patiently. One day you'll marry a handsome prince. He will take you away to live in a new palace. Your every wish will be granted. Doesn't that sound nice? No! Tears rolled down Nandi's cheeks. It sounds horrible. I don't want to leave you and Mama. I want to stay here and fight. Too late, her father realized he'd botched the fairy tale meant to cheer his only daughter up. Behind him, Tomi, her older brother, shuffled impatiently in a hurry to be off. He'd just turned twelve, and his head had been shaved like his father as a rite of passage. Now he would begin his training as a warrior. Aragoke sighed. You'll understand when you're older. Now go home. I'm sure your mother's looking for you. Later that day, while Nandi's sisters, Ivarim and Ifewat, the daughters of Aragoke's other two wives, sat in the garden playing with wooden statuettes, Nandi tossed aside her own doll and found a large stick instead. She charged at her sisters, brandishing the stick and stabbing at them. The little girls scattered, screaming and laughing, and threw clumps of dirt at her. Mariama, tall and dark like a daughter and still beautiful, strode into their midst. Nandi, she shouted, what are you doing? At her intrusion, the girls fell silent. Mariama was Adagoki's lead wife and had a higher rank than their mother's. She was someone to be feared. She grabbed the little girl's arm and shook her. What's wrong with you? This behavior is unfitting of an Oba's daughter. Nandi hung her head. I'm sorry, Mama. You are a young lady. Ladies do not fight. They do not cavort about in the dust like monkeys. Do you understand? Yes, Mama. Her mother softened. Good, now come. She took the little girl's hand. I have a new dress for you to try on. 
Nandi tossed and turned upon her low bed. The night was cool, but she was sweating. Maybe I have a fever. She hoped not. If she was sick, the witch-doctor would be called with his effective but disgusting concoctions of herbs. She hoped that if she was sick, there was an evil spirit plaguing her instead. That would be more exciting, and she wouldn't have to drink anything. The little girl slipped out of bed and tiptoed through the ivory castle, past the exquisitely carved wooden furniture and brass sculptures. She stood in the doorway, letting the cool breezes dry the sweat on her forehead. She saw that the two men guarding the palace were asleep, asleep standing up and holding tight to their spears. How? Then Nande saw a long black cat skulking toward the door. A silent scream exploded in her mind. Panther! In a moment he would see her, and that would be it. He would crush her small neck between his powerful jaws before ravishing her home. How many would he kill before the men could corner him? She ran back inside, and in the next instant he stood before her, gazing at her with his green eyes. Preternatural intelligence stared out of those eyes. And knowing, he knew who she was and what moved her, what she longed for. The panther vanished. That night, the dreams began. Sword in hand, she spun like a top, swinging it left and right, opening the juggler veins of her enemy. She led a vast, conquering army, and her name would be written upon the wind. Nande, a tall young woman with braided hair, high cheekbones, and a wide mouth, crouched behind thick brush. She followed them every day, but always from a distance. She knew how to keep quiet, how to stop when they stop, although how she'd come about this knowledge was still a mystery to her. The warriors were traveling to the savannah bordering the Beanie City, scanning the wide, flat grasslands for signs of the Edo. If the warriors found signs of violation, they would prepare for war. Perhaps they would go to war anyway. She hoped so. Nandi was eighteen now and brave enough to even consider following them when they went to battle, so she could watch. She risked capture by the Edo, even death, but it would be worth it. The warriors stopped, and she did too. General Chinua turned and looked directly at her hiding place. He singled out a young man who she recognized as Sule, with a wide nose and full lips, his head shaved like that of his fellows, and three other warriors. It's probably nothing. A leopard, perhaps, the general said. He handed Sule a tiny brown flute. Nande knew what it was. Her father had one such whistle. When blown, it made the sound of the black-throated firefinch. If you find spies, blow this, Chinua smiled humorously, and we will come. Nande's heart was pounding. If she was discovered, her mother and father would be shamed, and she would be punished. Worst of all, she'd never be able to follow them again. The young woman shut her eyes. She was trapped. If she stood up, they would see her. If she stayed where she was, they would find her. A crackle of leaves just above her made her open her eyes. She looked up into Sule's face. 
He put his finger to his lips, then began to tread away from her in wide circles, pretending to search to keep his friends from coming any closer. At length, he loped over to the other men. I think the general was right. It was only a leopard. He didn't see anything? A brown warrior asked him. No, come on. We're missing all the fun. I wish an army would attack, another said. I'm itching for battle. Sule bared his teeth in a predatory smile. As am I. They took off, their powerful legs carrying them easily in a light run. Sule glanced over his shoulder at Nande and smiled. The next day he joined her as he strolled to the marketplace to buy fruit. Bini was a city of long alleyways, its houses built close together along the streets. In the savannah bordering the populated areas, goats and oxen were kept in thorn fences, with markers designating ownership. Ah, Sule smiled, his white teeth flashing in his dark face. I've caught a little bush rabbit. Nande gifted him with a smile of her own. She glanced around the market to make sure no one was listening. Thank you for not giving me away, she said softly. Sule followed her gaze and lowered his voice. I would never do that. I've seen you before. Her breath caught in her throat. You, you have? Did anyone else see me? I don't think so. She relaxed. Probably not. If they did, they would have told my father. Everyone likes to tell on me. They delight in getting me in trouble. I don't. There was an awkward silence. They'd reached the fruit vendors. Nande chose the ripest papayas and mangoes and placed them in her woven basket. They continued walking through the market. She reached into the folds of her dress for coins to pay the vendor. Why aren't you sparring today? He grinned. General Chinua is meeting with your father in the Council of Elders. Huh. Nande nodded knowingly. They discussed the possibility of war. Yes. The Edo have been violating our borders for months now. It's time to teach them a lesson. He broke off, eyeing her appreciatively. How do you know such things? People talk. I listen. Nandi, why do you follow us? Are you bored? She snorted derisively. I help the servants clean, prepare food, buy fruits, vegetables, and watch my mother supervise her household. Your mother is preparing you for the position of lead wife. Yes. Understanding and admiration shifted across his face. But that doesn't make you happy. Nande sized him up. Can I trust him? You're right, Sule. I'm bored. Her voice dropped to a whisper. I want to be a warrior. You cannot be a warrior. You are a woman. Keep your voice down. I know it's forbidden, but it's what I want. She smiled sadly. That's why I watch you. He hesitated a moment, coming to a decision before he spoke. You don't have to follow us any more. I'll teach you. For two weeks they met after dark, sneaking away to the outskirts of the city to practice in the high grass under the moonlight. It was dangerous. If caught, they would both be punished. 
but that only made it more exciting, and Nandi was an amazingly quick study. It's as if the ancestors themselves are sleeping under your skin, Sule praised her. The next night, Nandi slid out of bed and crept into the main room. As she headed for the door, her mother pounced out of the darkness to grab her arm. What do you take me for? Mariana fumed. You should know by now that nothing happens without my knowledge. I've had it with you and your strange behavior, and now, meeting men at night, you'd better still be a virgin, and Sule! Leave him out of it. He didn't do anything wrong. He was just— Her mother advanced with gin-litted eyes. Just what? Who told her? How did they see? How much did they see? Nande decided she had nothing left to lose. We, we were talking. Mariama shook her head in disgust. You sneak out after midnight to talk? Go back to bed. I'll deal with you in the morning. Nande watched them file past, two servant women flanking her. Among the warriors was Sule, who still wore the marks of her father's anger on his face. He gazed stonily ahead. He knew better than to even look at her. Tomi spotted Nandi in the crowd and threw a murderous glance in her direction. She'd embarrassed him. She'd had to submit to an examination by a midwife to be certain that she was still a virgin. If Sule had made love to her, the Oba could have him executed. As punishment... Her chores were doubled, and she'd been confined to the palace. And war had come to Bini, after all. It was traditional for everyone to see them off with much singing and dancing, which was the only reason she'd been allowed to leave the palace. She would never see battle. Sule would never hold her. Nandi fainted. She thrashed on her bed, her long body slick with sweat. Mariama kneeled beside her, sponging off her face with cool water. Burning pots of incense were placed about the room. Behind them stood Bolaji, the witch doctor. Shidern is in the spirit world. There's nothing I can do. Mariama choked back a sob. It's because of me, isn't it? I was too hard on her. She has been called by her ancestors. When she returns, if she returns, it will be their choice. The older woman twisted around to look at the healer. Why would they do this? What could they possibly want with Nandi? Belaji regarded her solemnly. I cannot answer. I only know where she dwells. Keep her comfortable and wait. That's all you can do. Nandi picked her way through the trees bordering the stream. I don't remember this place. How did I come to be here? Above her, a luminous full moon gleamed down upon her. She knelt, gazing at her reflection. It's too quiet. There were no insects chirping, no monkeys, no birds. Her reflection disappeared. In its place, a black panther stared up at her. The young woman jerked violently and backed away on her knees. In the next instant, he stood in front of her, staring at her with green, luminous eyes. She froze. An image of her body mangled and bloody flashed through her mind. The great cat opened his mouth and spoke, his deep voice resonating through the forest. 
Do not fear me, Nande. I have no need for your flesh. After a long moment she found her voice. I remember you. You came to me when I was a little girl. Who are you? I am Ogon. God of war, she breathed. You honor me. There is something I wish to show you. The forest disappeared, and Nandi was riding astride Ogun through the high grass, her arms clasped tightly around his neck. Hundreds of beanie warriors on horseback raced alongside them. Where are we? she said in his ear. And why can't they see us? We're just outside the Edo kingdom, the panther rumbled, and I have cloaked us. They will only see us if I desire it. At length, they stopped in front of a ten-foot sandstone enclosure that stretched around the clan farms and ditches. Towering above the fortress was the Edo Palace. They dismounted and ran for the fence, led by Arigoke. At his command, they threw rope with grapple hooks over the side and began to scale the fortress. In moments, an alarm was sounded, and warriors appeared at the top, picking them off with arrows. Beanie archers, positioned in the grass, returned to their fire. She climbed off the panther's back, looking on with disgust. What is the point of this? They'll never kill enough of them to get inside. The panther turned his head to her and smiled. They're not supposed to. What you see is a distraction. Look there. Beanie warriors broke away and ran along the side of the fence to the back, led by General Tinua. At the back of the fortress, two hundred more waited. The beanie tossed their grapple hooks over the side. But this time the rope burst into flames. In mere seconds it had turned to ash. Damn, you don't magic, the general cursed. I don't like this. I fight with spear and sword, not magic. Bolajil! Instantly, the witch-doctor appeared, a specter not of solid flesh but of spirit, his image blinking in and out in the darkness. "'The only way inside this fortress is under it,' Bolagil said. "'I can create a door, but I cannot hold it open. Enter at your own risk.' He took a gourd from his belt and began to chant, then smashed it against the wall. Green flames crawled up the side of the fortress, sizzling like acid, and a doorway appeared. Chinua's jaw dropped. Well, I'll be. This is it. Let's go. They thundered through the door. Now Nandi smiled. So that's the plan. Distract them with arrows while we sneak through the back door. But why have you brought me here? Because your heart cried out to me. Would you like to join them? Oh, yes. And so you shall. In the next instant, she stood armed with shield and sword, still female, and with her breast covered with a strip of cloth and her head shaved. Nande rushed through the door with the men, Sule among them, into a narrow, dark chamber. The passageway led to a flight of stairs, and above it they could see moonlight shining down. Suddenly, an inhuman screech exploded, reverberating in the hall. They clapped their hands over their ears. The banshee cry ended, and the walls came to life. Ten-foot hulking creatures, with only eyes in their smooth faces, pulled themselves from the sandstone to attack. General Chinua uttered an oath. The Edu must have a counter-alarm! 
They fought on grimly, but it was no use. Severed arm was regenerated. Machetes sank into strange clay-like skin that drew no blood. With arms like steel, the monsters snatched up the warriors and crushed them. In the darkness, the screams of the dying and injured echoed in the passageway. Behind them, Balogil's doorway vanished. We're trapped, Sule shouted. Suddenly, Ogon was beside her. The panther opened its mouth and roared. Warriors rose from the chamber floor, specters with the heads of leopards and the bodies of men covered by black fur. At this new intrusion, the beanie knew all was lost. But the panther warriors fell upon their enemies with the claws and teeth of jungle cats, disemboweling them, severing necks and arms. The beanie raced up the stairs and across the city square. Fighting in the torchlit square, Nande waited for someone to shout that a woman was among them, but the cry never came. The god has cloaked me. She found herself fighting alongside Sule. He stabbed the Edo warrior he was grappling with in the gut, glanced at her, and his jaw dropped. He knows. The moment almost cost them both their lives. In that instant, an Edo sprang forward and slashed her across the chest. As Sule rushed to help her, another stabbed at his throat. Sule leaped back. The sword point pricked his neck, drawing blood. And Nande thrust forward with a killing stab to her opponent, then like lightning sliced across the other Edo's chest. They cut a bloody path toward Obafela's palace. Their enemies, now beset from the front and back, were falling under the beanie swords. You! Nande pointed at Sule and fifty others. Follow me! They cut a catacomb to Fela's palace, thundering from room to room searching for him. Finally they came to a resplendent chamber with a huge veiled bed and two overstuffed chairs. Obafela, his four wives and six children were hiding there. In the next instant, the Edu witch-doctor appeared, hissing a mantra, and at the same time smashing a glass ball to the floor. Smoke exploded in their faces. When it cleared, the king and his family had vanished. "'It doesn't matter,' Nandi shouted. "'The city is ours!' She awoke with a gasp. Her hand flew to her head, and she felt the braids. It was a dream. A wonderful dream. The sounds of battle still echoed in her ears. Nandi rose up on her elbows and looked around. Mariama slept on the floor beside her. How long have I been out? She slipped out of bed and walked through the group room to the palace entrance. In the distance she heard the sound of cheering. Tomi dragged the Idu through the ivory palace, followed by five other warriors, and threw him at his father's feet. We found this one lurking outside the city. The beanie encircled him with spears. I started to kill him, but I thought you'd want to question him first. Speak, and perhaps I'll spare your life, Aragoke barked. I am Chicha, and I bring you a message from my king, Obafela. He is Oba nothing now, Aragoke sneered. He is a coward who fled with the help of witchcraft. And the Edo Empire is mine now. King Fela has joined his Isan allies in the north. They will attack in the morning unless I return with an answer to his question. And what would that question be? 
Actually, it's a proposition, Chicha replied. Obafela proposes an alliance between the Bini and Edo kingdoms. United, you will sweep across the continent to build an empire, and none will stand before you. Adagoke leaned forward, eyes gleaming. I'm listening. This truth will be solidified by the marriage of King Fela's oldest son, Abayome, and your daughter, Nandi. She hunkered down in the elephant grass watching them. Nandi's eyes drank in every fluid movement as the warriors parried, blocked, and stabbed. While practicing, the young men used heavy sticks. Even so, these sparring sessions often ended with someone bleeding. Her eyes lingered upon one ebony-skinned young man. Sule. She breathed his name softly, like a caress carried by the fragrant breeze. Nandi's eyes filled with tears, and she turned away. Since her journey into the spirit world, her mother had lifted her punishment. But it made no difference. Her future had been decided. Tonight was the celebration of her betrothal to Abayomi, the eldest son of Fela, Oba of the Edo tribe. The royal clan was preparing a feast in celebration. Nandi's union with him would ensure the union of their kingdoms and an end to ceaseless fighting between them and a powerful alliance. She strode into the marketplace to buy fruit, and her sisters Ephraim and Ephawat fell into step beside her. The three young women filled their baskets with guava, pineapple, melons, and plantains. You must be so excited, Ephawat simpered. Abayomi is very handsome. Nandi thought of Abayomi's arrogant, cruel face and said nothing. Ivarim smiled slyly. I heard you did not want to marry him, but of course that isn't true, is it? I'd willingly share him with ten more wives. Then why don't you marry him? Nandi snapped. The women gasped in shock. You dishonor father, said the first one. Nandi pressed her lips together and hurried away from them, her long legs quickly carrying her home. They were jealous. Jealous because her mother was lead wife, because she was betrothed to Abayomi, the son of an Oba, and he had paid many goats, cowrie shells, and other riches for her hand. They should try being me, then see how jealous they are. Her life would have been so much easier if she could smile and passively accept the demands of her parents, and later her husband. But what if the ancestors whisper something else to your heart? Nandi reached the palace. Inside and to the right of the ivory structure, Adegoki's wives and servants were busy cooking. Yams were being pounded into fufu. Porridge rich with vegetables and goat meat bubbled in a pot above the three stones in Mariama's kitchen. Palm oil was already being siphoned into wooden serving bowls. She put her fruit on a low table. At that moment, Mariama emerged from an alcove to her right. Little one, you're back. What took you so long? Never mind. I need you to fetch some more water. The young woman smiled dryly. Her mother had always liked giving orders. But today she would gladly obey them, thankful to escape all the preparation for her marriage feast. It reminded her of how precious her last days of freedom were. She grabbed a woven basket and headed for their stream. Nandi knelt beside the stream at the edge of the palace and dipped her basket into the water. 
she gazed at her reflection. How grim she looked, like a woman about to be executed rather than one embarking on a life of wedded bliss. The image disappeared. In its place, a black panther stared up at her. In the next instant, the god Ogun appeared in panther form, gazing at her with his luminous eyes. You tricked me, she shouted, forgetting that she was in the presence of a god. You made me think I could have more. She covered her face with her hands and began to weep. There is nothing else. Not for me. Go and leave me in peace. The god spoke, his bass voice echoing through the wood. Do not despair, Nondi. The battle is not over yet. He vanished. At nightfall, the two royal clans gathered for the feast. Obafela and Abayomi arrived with their royal entourage of ten warriors. Nandi had been bathed and perfumed with oils. Her hair was now braided in an elaborate upsweep and decorated with beads. Bangles hung from her neck and wrists. She wore a cloth of colorful printed design wrapped around her shapely frame. Her feet were encased in paper-thin sandals. More bangles decorated her ankles. Nandi's parents presented her to Abayomi. The prince was a young man with a face that seemed to be entirely crafted of hard, arrogant edges. His head was shaved except for a beaded topknot, and he wore a cape of white linen about his shoulders and golden bracelets. He smiled, his teeth flashing against his dark skin, and eyed Nandi as if she was his personal possession. You've grown more beautiful since our last meeting. And she managed a stiff smile. Adagoki beamed at his future son-in-law. Truly this marriage has been blessed by the gods. I know it will bring prosperity and long life to both the Bini and Edo realms. At this, Abayomi bowed respectfully and took his seat opposite them. Nandi's parents escorted her to the low seat facing the circle of wedding guests. Behind them, in covered dishes, the feast awaited. Inside the circle the dance began. The unmarried beanie women entered the space, moving their hips and shoulders in demure, sensuous rhymes, chanting of virgins not yet captured by their lovers. The men danced into the space, and the women swayed out of their reach. The warriors followed, never touching the virgins, but seductively moving about them, all the while soulfully expressing, with hands and pelvis, the ultimate joy of wedded bliss. Nandi spotted Sule among the dancers. It had been he, not Abuyami, that wooed her with eyes full of longing, and she'd answered his call with a body that burned for a touch that never came. He was no Oba's son. He had no political alliance to offer her father, nor riches to give. Only his heart. Sule caught her gaze and quickly shifted his eyes to his partner lest his face betray the swirling emotions within. Outside the circle in the savannas, Ogun appeared. He spoke, his voice like thunder. Come! Nande glanced about wildly. Surely the guests heard his basso profundo command. She could not leave her wedding party. To do so would violate Nubian customs, tantamount to slapping her future husband in the face. What's wrong with you? 
Mariama hissed. You're embarrassing us. Heed my command, Nandi. Come. I cannot disobey a god. What's more, she didn't want to. She longed to escape. The young woman stood. Mariama grabbed her daughter's arm, digging her nails into Nandi's flesh. What are you doing? Sit down, or so help me. Nandi snatched her arm away and raced to Ogun. She followed the god deep into the forest. In the moonlight, scant yards ahead she saw them. Hundreds of Ido and Esan warriors, armed with spears and swords, creeping to her village under the cover of night. In minutes they would be upon her, and she knew. So the proposal was a sham, she whispered fiercely. The Ido never wanted peace, or me. Oh, Abayume will marry you, Ogan rumbled at her side, after he's conquered your city and taken your family hostage. What can I do, even if I could warn them it's too late? A cold rage filled her, rage at her parents for forcing her into a marriage she didn't want, for denying her the man she loved, and rage that she'd been denied her right to be a warrior. At this final thought, a great wind swirled about her, shaking the trees and bending the grass, so that even the marauders looked up uneasily. Ogun opened his jaws in a loud, coughing roar, and the wind tore at her clothing, embracing her with power and knowledge. A sword appeared in her hands, and she loped across the grass with preternatural speed to meet the invaders. They were alarmed by her sudden appearance, but quickly regained their hubris. She was, after all, only one. And she was female. Who are you? Their leader barked. The mad woman of the forest? He was a giant of a man with his hair gathered in a trademark Edu top knot. Those closest to him chuckled. She glared at him with flashing eyes. I am Nandi, he looked nonplussed. Nandi? Abayomi's betrothed? The leader turned to his men. She has discovered us. Bind and gag her. I give you one warning, Nande hissed. Leave now and I will spare your lives. At this the warriors roared with laughter. Take her, the leader sputtered. She leapt into the air, grabbing his topknot, and severed his head in one swipe, stabbed the warrior to his right in the heart, and sliced the one on his left across the chest in a fatal blow. Nande bowed like a dancer, arms straight out, then whipped the machete to the left and right, dropping warriors. She was a fury, chopping and stabbing through their ranks, a whirlwind of slaughter. Behind her, Ogun transformed into the towering giant of a man with midnight black skin and the teeth and claws of a panther. From the grass, more panther warriors rose like deadly blossoms and joined Nandi's army. Outnumbered, but with fangs and talons to compensate for their numbers. And the woman who led them was equal to four men. In a very short while, it was over, and their enemies lay dead in the grass. The rest fled back across grasslands. Ogun faced her now, still as a man, with a rope of iron about his neck. This is your destiny, Nandi, he rumbled one given to you by your ancestors. It is written in battle, blood, and glory. The forest god smiled. 
a terrible and wondrous smile. Go and claim it now. Nandi bowed reverently. Thank you. How do I repay you? By embracing your destiny. Nandi turned to go. Wait, Ogun called. He smiled his terrible smile once more. Take something with you to convince your parents. The beanie wedding party cried out at the sight of her striding back into their midst, except for Sule, who smiled as if his life had just begun. Nandi's dress was torn and dirty. She was splattered from head to foot with gore. In one hand she held a sword, and in the other the severed head of an Edo general. She pointed her sword at Abayomi. Betrayer! Your army has been defeated! She threw the severed head at his feet. By me! Mariama clung to her husband, gawking at a woman she no longer knew. Daughter! You? Adagoke breathed. You did this? Yet he could not disguise the pride intermingled with shock upon his broad face. She turned her flashing eyes to him. Yes, father, I am Nandi, and I will choose my own path. That story made me feel so brave and strong. It was just marvellous. Thank you, Virgil. Anyhow, that brings us to the end of today's show. Please remember that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. Share and enjoy, but don't change or sell. And if you like what we bring you, please consider donating something to keep the stories rolling. In the meantime, take it easy, keep smiling, and listen to some great music this week. It's good for the soul. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.